19. That's page uh, 994 in the ESV Pew Bible in front of you. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, for I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in, the, in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we want to echo the words that were just sung. Thinking in the words of John the baptizer that I must decrease and he must increase. And so, Father, we ask that you would remove all obstacles in our way. Father, that we would be diligent to remove them ourselves in the things that we allow to, to hinder us, to burden us, to uh, ensnare us to this world. That we would keep our eyes set on Christ. That we would be filled with more and more of him each and every day. As we seek to grow in Christ's likeness, as we seek to grow into the bride of Christ, this his body, the church. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that your word would speak powerfully to our hearts and our minds, and that it would transform and change us into your children. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you've had a chance to listen to this week's episode, uh, of the podcast Candid Conversations, and I will do a subtle plug for my own podcast because I'm not below that. Um, you would have heard an interview I did with a, a friend of mine, uh, Rocky Seto. Rocky is a, a Japanese American. Uh, he's from California. He grew up in an unbelieving home, and he wanted to please his father, and his father loved American football. And so Rocky dedicated his life to performing well on the football field. And he played in high school, and he had this great grand goal of going and playing for USC, Southern California. And he ends up going to junior college and playing football well. And then he transfers to the University of Southern California, and he has this providential encounter with the head coach of the football team, he makes the team, and it's during that time that he comes to saving faith in Christ uh, through the, the many witnesses in his life, both in the junior college level and uh, at USC. And then he transitions into the coaching world. 
And he moves from a volunteer assistant coach for USC. And in 10 years, he is the defensive coordinator of the USC Trojans. He has an absolutely meteoric rise through the college ranks, coaching ranks. He has NFL teams that are courting him, that want him to come and coach for them. He has other major universities that are pursuing him. But then he follows uh, his head coach at USC, Pete Carroll, into the NFL to coach with the Seattle Seahawks. And Rocky takes a massive pay cut and this demotion, really, and he goes to work for the quality control position, which is one of the lowest positions in, in football. And then he works his way up in, in seven or eight years with the Seahawks, all the way up to assistant head coach. He's won national championships at USC. He's won a Super Bowl with the Seahawks. He's absolutely at the top of his game. And the Lord calls him to vocational preaching and pastoring of a, of a church in California, giving up his seven-figure salary to a significantly less salary. He's giving up on the, the accolades and the prestige that comes with the profession to take over a church and deal with the day-to-day -day affairs of running a church. How many do you think would see that as the obvious move in one's career? It's quite a lot to walk away from. Well, today as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20, we're looking at the only person and the only message that has the ability to take someone away from the thing that they love and offer them something infinitely better. This morning we're looking at kingdom message and kingdom messengers. We've been introduced to John the baptizer who has prepared the way for the Messiah to come and we've been introduced to our Messiah but he has yet to speak in Mark's gospel. What will his message be? Well, thankfully our wait is over. Verse 14 now, after John was arrested, you know, just a simple phrase to kick us off, uh, we know that John preached quite hard against Herod and, uh, and uh, that towards Herod's wickedness and his marriage to his brother's sister. And, and, and we get more of those, we'll get more of those details when we come to chapter 6 uh, in Mark's gospel in the year 2025. Uh, but for now, we know that John was arrested. John is the very first of millions who would come after him to be persecuted for Christ. Uh, I've heard that it be it's been told that there are 700 million people who have died for their faith in Christ since John. But John is the very first of that line of martyrdom uh, that is... To come. It's also worth noting here that there's about a one-year period that takes place between verse 13 and verse 14 here in Mark's gospel. During that period, Jesus has performed some of his first signs and miracles. Uh, he's given some of his earliest teaching. He's traveled between Galilee and Judea. The miracles were primarily in Galilee. The teaching was primarily in Judea. 
This year is sometimes often referred to as the year of obscurity, and we would know very little of it if it were not for John's gospel. So John the baptizer is arrested. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. If you remember our second message from our series, we talked about how so much of Mark was a a direct attack on Rome. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Caesars referred to themselves as sons of God, and their births were heralded as the gospel, the good news to the whole world that Caesar has been born, the Savior has come, and here is Mark saying, No, the real Son of God has come, and he brought the good news of God. He brought the gospel of God. And here is his message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, or in the NIV, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' preaching had three emphases in, in, in almost all of his preaching, all of his teaching. It's the kingdom, it's repentance, and it is belief. That was the message. It had elements that were present, of course, in the Old Testament Scripture, but, but now they're coming forth with, with clarity and they're coming together. And, and it's more vivid and it's more clear and it's being crystallized. But I want us to work our way through these as we put together a a clearer picture of Jesus' first words in Mark's gospel. Jesus' preaching called the Galileans to believe in the gospel. Believe the gospel. Specifically, he called them to believe the good news. The kingdom was near. That's the good news. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is near. But it made me wonder, what is belief today? What is belief? What is faith? It's really what we're unpacking here, isn't it? It is that Christ has come and died for those who put their faith, their trust, their saving faith, their saving trust in him. And we remove anything that hinders us from coming to Christ. And we, we flee to him. But in today's culture, we, we, we see so much ambiguity. I hear Christians speak of other people as if those other people are believers when I know for a fact that that person has never professed Christ. And if you were to ask them, they would tell you that's the truth, that they have not made that profession, but that these people think that they're believers because they're nice people. And so we confuse nice people for believing in the gospel. Or if someone talks the talk and they use all the the Christian passwords and keywords and code words, brother, fellowship, faith, God, Right? Key words, buzz words, and we hear them, and we all of a sudden we associate these people in a certain category. 
We think that this shows us that there is, there is saving faith behind who they are. Or if they hold to our social conventions, they share our views on alcohol and drugs and, and a proper way for people to dress. Or they share our political convictions. As one author puts it, the ease with which you can adopt the behavioral mores of professing Christianity has been greased by the gradual alignment of many believers with the materialism and hedonism of our secular culture. In other words, as Christians began to prioritize or rather to to prize the things of this world more and more over Christ and His gospel, the easier it has become for people to align with particular values and call themselves Christians, or the harder it has become to distinguish true believers from what we would call moral therapeutic deists. People who like the feel of church and they like to be in the Christian community, but they have never put their saving faith in Christ. What about heritage? If your parents are respectable Christians, or even better yet, if your parents are Christian workers, it will be assumed that you are a believer. By going to church and you you go to the prayer meetings and you go to the Bible studies, No one would ever question you. Some well-meaning parents have manipulated their children into bogus confessions and bogus baptisms and, and bogus memberships. And so you have either unregenerate believers who are sitting in pews of churches and no one has the gumption to question their faith, or you have what we see in Mass today, which is people deconstructing their faith, which is really that they had no faith to begin with. It was that they were building it on this this fake stuff. They were building on sand. They were building it on the accoutrement that, that surrounds the faith, but not on the faith itself. I suppose if there's good news in that, it's that the ones who had maybe fake professions, they're still sitting in church. The prayer is that somebody's going to come alongside and question them. And the deconstructionists at least are recognizing that they didn't actually have faith to begin with. Belief is all that is necessary to become a Christian. Don't mishear me. I'm not trying to add to that. Belief is all you need to make you a Christian, but it must be a belief that changes your life. If you say you believe, but you have no evidence of a changed life, then we must carefully consider whether we truly believe. This is a challenge, isn't it? I mean, even in my own mind as I was going through this, I'm personally feeling challenged because I come across people who think that they are saved and then come to find that they have never actually placed their trust in Christ. In all honesty, this is what drove me into ministry. This is what drove me to go and and study in seminary. I was working with people whose parents were, uh, fathers were pastors or parents were missionaries overseas, and they thought they knew God. And quickly, in a few conversations, I realized that they essentially believed 
was some form of universalism, that, that Jesus did all this stuff to, to save the whole world and that we're just all going to show up in heaven and, and, and give him a high five and say thanks. It's really crazy. It's crazy that, that, that that's what they could have concluded from whatever their parents were teaching. That there's no belief necessary at all, that, it, that it's all covered for everyone. But, but at the other end of the spectrum are dear souls who love Christ, have served Christ, have been faithful with, with what God has entrusted to them, but, but they still feel doubts. And it's usually because they sit under poor teaching. Now, even John Bunyan doubted his faith till the end. So this challenge of Jesus on believing in the gospel, it goes two ways. It should be a, a prod in the back for the comfortable person who thinks that they are saved by heritage or anything other than Christ. But at the same time, it should be a comfort to the believer who feels doubt. That no, I have put my trust in Christ and not in my works and not in my knowledge and not in my heritage or my ability to talk the talk. And that has given evidence to myself and to those around me that this is true. That this is real. The message is about belief in the gospel. The message is also about repentance. Now, there are a lot of people that feel sad and confess their sin, but ultimately do not put their trust in Christ, just as there are many who intellectually believe but never repent. And so these two, repentance and belief, these two things go hand in hand. Because you see, if repentance is just removing and getting rid of and dropping whatever and, or whoever stands in your way of Christ, if there is something or someone that keeps you from Christ, that thing or that person is incredibly dangerous. And it will destroy you. This is the, the line in Luke's gospel when the, when the prodigal son is out and he's lost. And it says, the scripture says, and he came to himself. He comes to himself. He repents of his obstinance. He drops the, the stubborn attitude that he's held, and he returns to his father. Maybe you need to drop your goal of being in charge of your own life. Maybe you need to drop your pride, which says, you don't need any of this stuff. You don't need any of this gospel. Maybe you need to drop a bad relationship that has become unhealthy. These things will kill you. Drop them. Cut them off and flee to Christ. Repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom is near. The kingdom is here. He's not saying the kingdom is coming one day. He's saying the kingdom is beside you. 
And to point that out, look at, at Mark chapter 11. It says they came near Jerusalem. It's the same Greek word is used here. They came near Jerusalem. They came physically near Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 14, it says Judas came near Jesus to betray him. Physically near. And Jesus is physically near. And if Jesus has come near and he is the king, then the kingdom has come near. And if he announces that the kingdom has come near, he is announcing to us, I am the king. I am the king. If you want to belong to the kingdom, you have to do business with the king. And you don't do business with the king by, by, by hoping that you make it one day. The work has been done by the king. The call or the message now is repent and believe. This is the message. Now the messengers. Here we read in verses 16 to 20 of Jesus calling four of his disciples now, we need to understand here that there's more background at play. This isn't just a random man walking up and looking at someone and saying, do you want to be a fisher of men? I'll make you a fisher of men. And they just sort of drop everything and follow him. I mean, that, that would be so bizarre. It wouldn't make any sense. No, as we said earlier, Jesus has been teaching before, and, and these men knew who Jesus was uh, to some extent, and they recognized the authority with which he is speaking. This is going to come up next week. That's the first time that passage will come up where it's like the people are saying, this guy speaks with authority that the scribes don't have. Even the Pharisees recognize that Jesus speaks with authority. He speaks as one who has authority like a king who has brought a kingdom. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw... Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. What is he calling them to? What is he calling them to? He's calling them to believe in him, in a sense. He, he's saying, you come and follow me and be my disciples, and I will change your impact, and I will change your status, and I will change your profession. And what is their response? And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. What did they do? They repented. They left the thing that would prevent them from following Christ. They cannot follow Jesus and his ministry and remain as fishermen. They would need to be on the sea at all times to remain in that vocation. They needed to drop what they were doing and to take hold of Christ. And then as if Mark wasn't sure you got what he was illustrating... He repeats the same event with different people. Verse 19, and going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And what did they do? They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Peter and Andrew, they, they left their work. They, they left their vocation and followed Jesus. James and John, they left 
their father. If you will flip over to Mark chapter 10, it's page 1006 in your pew Bible. This will help us get the point across, illustrate the point. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it is, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What is all of this saying? It's saying the cost of discipleship is very real. Entering the kingdom of God cannot be done by any other means than giving up everything and holding fast to the one who makes it sure. The rich ruler didn't miss out on the kingdom because he was rich. He missed out on the kingdom because he loved his money, he loved his possessions, he loved his position more than he loved the king. But there's a word for those who do give it all up for Christ. The receiving a hundredfold of whatever it is that you give up. And this is not prosperity gospel, because all of this hundredfold blessing comes in the form of the church, where we have a new family who looks after us, who, who cares for us, not just physically, but, but spiritually as well. 
Think of the early church, the, 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 that they held all things together in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Think of the followers who gave up everything to follow Christ, who had to leave families and neighborhoods, but who received spiritual parents and spiritual families instead. This is the fruit of those who repent and believe, recognizing the kingdom has come. The truth of it is, this is what we do when we come to Christ. But this is also what we needed, need to be reminded of every single day. I need to be reminded of it, what it means to be a follower of Christ. I need to be reminded of what repentance and belief looks like. I need to be reminded that the kingdom is with Christ and Christ is in me through the Holy Spirit. And so I live my life with that at the forefront considering what may entangle me and keep me from Christ and flee to him, for he is my life and he is my light. I thought about a lot of closing illustrations and I, I couldn't land on one. I, I think of the countless people in the Middle East that Josh and Mary work with through Help the Persecuted who face this situation every day. I mean, they could hear this sermon and and would be nodding right along, right? Having left family, having had death threats against them. But I think this is some of our situations too, in varying degrees. What we have left behind, what we have given up, what does it cost us to follow Christ? What does it look like? to be a follower of Christ? What does it look like to immediately drop whatever it is that, that, that holds us to this earth, to this world, and ask where the true value is? Where do we really find our identity? Where will that ultimately lie? Will it be in our professions? Will it be in our, our, our family unit? Will it be in our long-term heritage, the descendant of so-and-so? Does, will that carry any weight? Can you take any of that with you? It's ultimately about your relationship with Christ. It's ultimately about what you give up for Him. And the promise is there that He will supply your needs, but we need to understand that it's the kingdom first, a kingdom first mentality in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we represent. That's what it looks like to be a kingdom-minded person who has come to repentance and put their belief in Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, you know the intention of all this is it's, it's not guilt trip. It's not that we're trying to feel bad about ourselves, but it's, it's, it's giving us confidence in the truth. <laughs> it's proclaiming the good news that you can give these things up because there is something far better. That you could give up being a, a 
highly paid football coach to go into vocational ministry. You, you, you could give up anything that seems grand and grandiose if it means putting Christ first. And, and you do that and you speak to us in different ways and you, you've given us this body of believers and you've given us wise leaders who, who counsel us and advise us and, and, and help us think clearly as we have questions about what this looks like in our day-to-day life. Father, we think of generations in, in some of the songs we've already sung, passing on to the next generation, the, the reading of the Scripture that we had earlier. What is the message that we will send to the next generation? What are the things that we prioritize? What are the things that we put ahead of Christ and His gospel? Or will those be the things that mark us? For, for they will not make us heroes in this world. But they will be for your glory. And we have all eternity to revel in that glory. So, Father, help us to be kingdom-minded. Those of us who have come to repentance and come to belief in you. Oh, Father, that those would mark the transformation in our lives. That people would see that. And that we would tell them of the good news. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.